Hey friends, I'm Faring here. I'm so glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope you're able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all. Let's learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay, friends, let's begin. I'm so glad you're here for our studies together, my OOBTers. Today and in the coming episodes, we are going to read lots and lots of details about God's plan to create His tabernacle, or large portable tent, as a place for Himself to dwell among His people here on earth. I don't know about you, but the idea of God dwelling with us reminds me of one of my most favorite things about God, Emmanuel, our God with us. And if you have listened for any amount of time at all, you have probably also heard me say quite often on OVT that our Emmanuel is not just a baby in the manger. Actually, we saw God's desire to dwell with His people all the way back to the beginning. Yes, the literal beginning, of creation that is, as found in Genesis, when God dwelled with Adam and Eve in perfect relationship in the Garden of Eden. We've seen throughout our studies that ever since sin entered the world, God has been in process of rescue and restoration of his relationship with his people. And this tabernacle is just one more step in that direction. We're going to see in the tabernacle many pointers to Jesus, God's character, and reminders from the Garden of Eden even. So beautiful. If you're a fan of HGTV or really into architecture and construction, or maybe, just maybe, like me, you have a husband who happens to own a business called F7 Customs, through which he creates rustic and live-edge furniture. Maybe, right? (laughs) Anyway, any of that type of knowledge and interest level would be super helpful here. But even if you do not have or care for any of those things, I promise there's quite a bit for us to find in these chapters and verses as well. Also, As an important teaser to note here, all of this design talk God is sharing with Moses in these chapters will be revisited in later chapters in the book of Exodus, when the actual construction of the tabernacle begins. So we'll definitely be revisiting all of this again, in depth. (laughs) In the meantime, though, let's take a closer look at all God is describing to Moses. I think it is also important to note here that Moses is up on that mountain with God, receiving all the many instructions we are about to read in the next couple of episodes of OOBT. I can just visualize Moses sitting and taking notes as God speaks. Forty days and forty nights of conversation and instruction. All the tabernacle blueprints are speech from God to Moses. Phew. If you remember, we left off at the end of our last episode of OOBT with Moses on Mount Sinai with God for those forty days and forty nights. Did that 40 days and 40 nights remind you of any other instances of the use of 40 in Scripture? How about any of these? Genesis chapter 7 verse 12 tells us that God was so troubled by the wickedness of the world that He planned to destroy all life, with the exception of those with Noah on the ark. And the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Later, after Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt toward the Promised Land, God called him up to the top of Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights without eating bread or drinking water. Exodus 34:28. There, God gave Moses his covenant, the Ten Commandments, so they could live in alignment with the Lord. On the eve of their long-awaited entry to Canaan, God had Moses send out spies into the land so they could explore. They spent 40 days and nights scouting the land, then returned and reported all they had found. Numbers chapter 13, verse 25. In the famous story of David and the giant Goliath, God's people endured 40 days of taunting and challenges from Goliath before David is sent to the battlefield with bread for his brothers, and decides he's the one who will fight for his people. 
1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 16. When the prophet Elijah fled the wicked Queen Jezebel, he traveled forty days and nights until he reached Mount Horeb, 1 Kings 19.8. There, in the shelter of a cave, he heard God, not in the mighty wind, earthquake, or fire, but in a gentle whisper. After Jonah's rebellion, he prophesied about God's wrath to the Ninevites, telling them that they would be destroyed in forty days. Jonah chapter 3, verse 4. Many, many years from that time, the Bible tells us that after his baptism, Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. He fasted forty days and nights, and the devil tempted Jesus there in his hunger and apparent weakness. Matthew chapter 4, verse 2. After his crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus remained and walked with his disciples for forty days and nights before ascending to heaven. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. There are dozens of times that the number forty is mentioned throughout the Bible. For instance, Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, Genesis chapter 25, verse 20. The Israelites wandered 40 years in the wilderness before they entered the promised land, something Moses said God orchestrated to humble and test you in order to know that it was in your heart whether or not you would keep his commands, Deuteronomy 8, 2. It's mentioned enough times, particularly in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament, that we become aware that the number 40 is significant. Now that is a lot of 40 days and 40 nights and other references to number 40. Am I right? Goodness. While it is not completely clear as to the reasons the number 40 is repeated over and over again in Scripture, I think we can probably safely assume from these references that it is directly related to a time of testing of some sort. And in all honesty, if all these detailed descriptions we are about to study tells anything at all, I believe it would be this. God is a God of details and not one, including numbers on repeat, are wasted. Now, with that said, how about we just jump right into our reading of Exodus chapter 25 from the New Living Translation, which begins, Offerings for the Tabernacle. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to bring me their sacred offerings. Accept the contributions from all those whose hearts are moved to offer them. Here is a list of sacred offerings you may accept from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue, purple, and scarlet thread. Fine linen and goat hair for cloth tanned ram skins and fine goatskin leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and the fragrant incense, onyx stone and other gemstones to be set in the ephod and the priest's chest piece. Have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. You must build this tabernacle and its furnishings exactly according to the pattern I will show you. Plans for the Ark of the Covenant Have the people make an ark of acacia wood, a sacred chest 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches high. Overlay it inside and outside with pure gold and run a molding of gold all around it. Cast four gold rings and attach them to its four feet, two rings on each side. Make poles from acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings at the side of the ark to carry it. These carrying poles must stay inside the rings. Never remove them. When the ark is finished, place inside it the stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant, which I will give to you. Then make the ark's cover, the place of atonement, from pure gold. It must be forty-five inches long and twenty-seven inches wide. Then make two cherubim from hammered gold and place them on the two ends of the atonement cover. Mold the cherubim on each end of the atonement cover, making it all of one piece of gold. The cherubim will face each other and look down on the atonement cover. With their wings spread above it, they will protect it. Place inside the ark the stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant, which I will give you. Then put the atonement cover on top of the ark. I will meet with you there and talk to you from above the atonement cover, between the gold cherubim that hover over the ark of the covenant. 
From there, I will give you my commands for the people of Israel. Plans for the table. Then make a table of acacia wood, 36 inches long, 18 inches wide, and 27 inches high. Overlay it with pure gold and run a gold molding around the edge. Decorate it with a 3-inch border all around and run a gold molding along the border. Make four gold rings for the table and attach them at the four corners next to the four legs. Attach the rings near the border to hold the poles that are used to carry the table. Make these poles from acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Make special containers of pure gold for the table, bowls, ladles, pitchers, and jars to be used in pouring out liquid offerings. Place the bread of the presence on the table to remain before me at all times. Plans for the lampstand Make a lampstand of pure hammered gold. Make the entire lampstand and its decorations of one piece. The base, center stem, lamp cups, buds, and petals. Make it at six branches going out from the center stem, three on each side. Each of the six branches will have three lamp cups shaped like almond blossoms, complete with buds and petals. Craft the center stem of the lampstand with four lamp cups shaped like almond blossoms, complete with buds and petals. There will also be an almond bud beneath each pair of branches where the six branches extend from the center stem. The almond buds and branches must be all of one piece with the center stem, and they must be hammered from pure gold. Then make the seven lamps for the lampstand and set them so they reflect their light forward. The lamp snuffers and trays must also be made of pure gold. You will need 75 pounds of pure gold for the lampstand and its accessories. Be sure you make everything according to the pattern I have shown you here on the mountain. Okay, friends. Let's hear that last part one more time, shall we? In verse 40, God says to Moses, Be sure that you make everything according to the pattern I have shown you here on the mountain. God will give instruction of this type repeatedly in the coming chapters. Isn't it such a great reminder that we can see as tedious readings of directions that don't make much sense to us were spoken to Moses by our God of the universe, who was giving these instructions to make a way to dwell with us, in very particular ways, for very significant reasons. Before we take a deeper dive into all that, though, I want to share this from First Five's How Do I Get Through This Exodus Study about yet another repeated phrase. First Five begins, Throughout today's reading, we see a repeated phrase, The Lord said to Moses. God gave Moses additional instructions for the people, and they were to be carried out exactly as the Lord commanded. In Exodus 24.18 and Exodus 31.18, Moses was on Mount Sinai for forty days and forty nights. And God spoke to Moses and gave him two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant, written by the finger of God. Don't you just love the personal nature of God speaking these words to Moses and writing on the stone tablet with his finger? It delivered in a conversation. In Exodus chapters 20 through 23, God gave the Israelites the moral and civil law. He told them how to live in relationship with himself and with other people. In Exodus chapters 25 through 31, we find a different focus. By scanning the chapters, we can see in the headings that we're going to get the tabernacle instructions, plans for the Ark of the Covenant, table, lampstand, altar of burnt offering, courtyard, clothing for the priests, dedication of the priests, wash basin, anointing oil, incense, craftsmen to build, and instructions for Sabbath. In other words, we're going to get detailed instructions of the place that God has chosen to dwell among His people in. It may seem strange that God gave such detailed instructions for the construction of the tabernacle and its furnishings. God wanted these instructions followed precisely, exactly as I have shown you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it, Exodus 25, 9. We might wonder if God is just being picky. But when we consider the purpose of the tabernacle, we understand why these instructions are important. 
the creator of the universe, the almighty God, their deliverer, was coming to dwell in their midst. Exodus 25.8 This is why the Lord brought his people out of Egypt, so that he could dwell with them and they could serve and worship him. The Lord is the one worthy of our worship, and he rightly gives commands about how his people worship him. And so as not to miss it, let's backtrack just a little to return to verses 1-9 through about the offerings to be collected for the tabernacle. Here we have a bunch of former slaves living in the desert, and God wants them to build a portable tabernacle where he can dwell with them in the midst of the wilderness. He calls on them to use all kinds of precious metals and fabrics for this tabernacle. Where would they get all this stuff? If you remember, when they left Egypt, they got all these things from plundering the Egyptians. Those things God blessed them with are to be used for His glory. It wasn't just about them having nice things. These blessings didn't terminate on them. They served a much bigger purpose. And in asking for a voluntary offering, they have these things that they have brought out of Egypt, but God doesn't require that they return them all back to Him. He wants them to give out of gratitude, to give with a grateful heart and a desire to honor Him in their worship. And speaking of Egypt, we are soon going to see how the design of the tabernacle is another way that God has determined that now that he has brought Israel out of Egypt, he's going to make sure that he gets Egypt out of Israel, as we've said all along. If you think about the kinds of temples that were built in Egypt, they don't bear any resemblance to what God is building in the midst of his people. Nothing, really. When you think of Egypt, what do you think of? Pyramids, the ones that still stand today, huge structures where Pharaoh was worshipped as a god. They built massive structures. Not only that, but it's also entirely possible that some of these structures were built by Israelite slaves, right? So now the Israelites were drawn out of that land, and not only does their tabernacle not look like a pyramid, it's way more portable than a pyramid as well. So the presence of God is committing to be with them wherever they will go. Don't you just love that? Okay, moving on to the Ark of the Covenant. God starts here, so I guess we should too, right? (laughs) All kidding aside, though, we need to begin with this. God has a story and a picture He wants to show the Israelites, and us even, through each and every detail and design that we are going to study. And we see God's instructions start from the inside of the tabernacle out, just like He does with us. He doesn't start with the tent dimensions or any of that. Nope. He starts with the innermost piece of the tabernacle, the place where His presence will meet with them. So good. The Ark of the Covenant was almost four feet long, a little more than two feet wide, and roughly two feet high. It is a portable throne of sorts because remember, my OOBTers, God wants to be with them wherever they are traveling. This piece is also referred to as the Ark of the Testimony, of which the testimony is the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments God will write with his finger and soon give to Moses. Later, we will find out that the Ark is also containing two other items as well, a jar of manna and Aaron's rod that buds to show that he is the rightful person for the priesthood. And then that mercy seat. The law is under the mercy. Mercy is set above judgment. The law is beneath the mercy seat to anticipate the need for mercy as it relates to the obedience to God's law. In She Reads Truth Study Bible, in a section titled Come, Sit Where Mercy Is, it begins, On first read, Exodus chapters 25 and 26 are a rather long list of architectural instructions for the building of the tabernacle, dimensions, materials, and many, many details. But if you let yourself step away a bit and rise above for an aerial view, what you see before you is a beautiful picture of God drawing near to His people. The aerial view of these chapters reveals building plans for a room where grace and mercy dwell, like a set of prayer chairs for God and for you, a place where all kinds of talks are welcome and grace and mercy abound. 
One of the most important pieces of the tabernacle is the mercy seat. That name alone is so inviting, isn't it? Come, sit where mercy is. In Exodus chapter 25, verse 22, God says, I will meet with you there above the mercy seat. I will speak with you from there. How incredible for the God of the universe to set up a regular meeting spot for him and Moses. In the tabernacle layout, there is a barrier between the people and the mercy seat, something to divide the holy place from the most holy place, a curtain. Exodus 26, verse 33. This is the same curtain that was torn from top to bottom when Jesus' sacrifice was complete on the cross, in Matthew 27, verse 51. Just as God commanded it to be hung, He also commanded it to come down when the final sacrifice was made, an invitation for us to step through and enter the mercy seat, no matter who we are. The tabernacle points to Christ in every detail. As Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12 explains, He entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. God's plan for the tabernacle was for the Israelites to build it and for Jesus to tear it down and rebuild it in our hearts. This was the plan all along, to dwell among us, to draw us into the mercy seat where we can talk to Him, worship Him, and simply be with Him. When we look at these chapters from the 30,000-foot view, we realize that they aren't merely instructions. They are a blueprint for our own hearts, the place where God chose to dwell and chooses to dwell still. Moving on, I found this from the Bible recap about those cherubim. In chapter 25, verse 18, we see that the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, which is called the mercy seat, has cherubim. That's the plural of cherub on it. If you see a picture of a cherub, you've probably seen a naked baby with wings. As always, forget what you know from Renaissance art and precious moment figurines. We talked about the cherubim not long ago. They're one of the various types of angelic beings God created. This type is not a messenger angel, like the ones that show up as humans. From the various descriptions of them throughout scripture, we see that they have four wings covered in eyes. They likely have the form of a man, but they have four faces. They most often appear as guardians of holy places, like the Garden of Eden, for instance, and their images appear in the tabernacle and on the Ark of the Covenant. If you're a guardian of a holy place, it's good to have four faces so you can be watching in every direction at all times. The mercy seat has two cherubim positioned on opposite ends, and it is made of pure gold. This was God's resting place. It was essentially God's throne on earth. In Exodus chapter 25, verse 22, God says, There I will meet with you. The word used for meet in Hebrew also means betroth. There I will betroth you to me. And the word mercy seat is related to the word that means to make atonement. There's a lot happening here. This is an important item. One interesting parallel with what we see with the mercy seat descriptions is that it's really similar to what we see with the angels who appear in Jesus' tomb after his resurrection in John chapter 20, verse 12. They were positioned in the same way, at opposite ends of Jesus' burial spot. Okay, so moving along, we come to the table for the bread, or sometimes called the showbread. It's made similarly to the ark, but it contains 12 loaves of bread on the table, one for each tribe of Israel, showing that God is their daily bread, that He is sufficient provision for them. We also have the bowls and the cups of the drink offering in them, so that we have a table inside of the tabernacle that is set with bread and wine. Then in verse 31, we see the golden lampstand that's made of solid gold and probably weighed 75 pounds. That's a lot of gold. The branches are seven of them, the number of perfection, and crafted to look like a flowering almond tree. The lampstand is going to be the sole source of light in the tabernacle, and it is to be kept perpetually lit, and scholars will tell you that it is shaped to look like a tree because it's pointing back to the Garden of Eden. It's representing for us the tree of life, 
The tree of life is what Adam and Eve were barred from after they committed their sin with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we're already beginning to see that the dwelling place that God had with humankind in the garden is being copied or mimicked in the tabernacle in the way that the furnishings and the other pieces are designed. Moving on, Exodus chapter 26 from the New Living Translation reads, Plans for the Tabernacle Make the tabernacle from ten curtains of finely woven linen. Decorate the curtains with blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and with skillfully embroidered cherubim. These ten curtains must all be exactly the same size, 42 feet long and 6 feet wide. Join five of these curtains together to make one long curtain, then join the other five into the second long curtain. Put loops of blue yarn along the edge of the last curtain in each set. The 50 loops along the edge of one curtain are to match the 50 loops along the edge of the other curtain. Then make 50 gold clasps and fasten the long curtains together with the clasps. In this way, the tabernacle will be made of one continuous piece. Make eleven curtains of goat hair cloth to serve as a tent covering for the tabernacle. These eleven curtains must all be exactly the same size, forty-five feet long and six feet wide. Join five of these curtains together to make one long curtain, and join the other six into the second long curtain. Allow three feet of material from the second set of curtains to hang over the front of the sacred tent. Make fifty loops for one edge of each large curtain. Then make fifty bronze clasps and fashion the loops on the long curtains with the clasps. In this way, the tent covering will be made of one continuous piece. The remaining three feet of this tent covering will be left to hang over the back of the tabernacle. Allow 18 inches of remaining material to hang down on each side so the tabernacle is completely covered. Complete the tent covering with a protective layer of tanned ram skins and a layer of fine goatskin leather. For the framework of the tabernacle, construct frames of acacia wood. Each frame must be 15 feet high and 27 inches wide, with two pegs under each frame. Make all the frames identical. Make 20 of these frames to support the curtains on the south side of the tabernacle. Also make 40 silver bases, two bases under each frame, with the pegs fitting securely into the bases. For the north side of the tabernacle, make another 20 frames along with our 40 silver bases, two bases under each frame. Make six frames for the rear, the west side of the tabernacle, along with two additional frames to reinforce the rear corners of the tabernacle. These corner frames will be matched at the bottom and firmly attached to the top with a single ring, forming a single corner unit. Make both of these corner units the same way. So there will be eight frames at the rear of the tabernacle, set in 16 silver bases, two bases under each frame. Make crossbars of acacia wood to link the frames, five crossbars for the north side of the tabernacle, and five for the south side. Also make five crossbars for the rear of the tabernacle, which will face west. The middle crossbar attached halfway up the frames will run all the way from one end of the tabernacle to the other. Overlay the frames with gold and make gold rings to hold the crossbars. Overlay the crossbars with gold as well. Set up this tabernacle according to the pattern you were shown on the mountain. For the inside of the tabernacle, make a special curtain of finely woven linen. Decorate it with blue, purple, and scarlet thread and with skillfully embroidered cherubim. Hang this curtain on gold hooks attached to four posts of acacia wood. Overlay the posts with gold and set them in four silver bases. Hang the inner curtain from clasps and put the Ark of the Covenant in the room behind it. This curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. Then put the ark's cover, the place of atonement, or the mercy seat, on top of the ark of the covenant inside the most holy place. Place the table outside the inner curtain of the north side of the tabernacle, and place the lampstand across the room on the south side. Make another curtain for the entrance to the sacred tent. Make it of finely woven linen and embroider it with exquisite designs using blue, purple, and scarlet thread. Craft five posts from acacia wood. Overlay them with gold and hang the curtain from them with gold hooks. Cast five bronze bases for the posts. 
When considering the plans for the tabernacle, as described in what we just read, God of Freedom by Jen Wilkin has this to say about the four layers that we see making up the tent itself. The four layers veil the beauty of what's inside. In the inner layer, the cherubim are worked into the design. So just as we saw that the cherubim guarded Eden to keep Adam and Eve from approaching the tree of life again, so we also see the whole perimeter of the tabernacle on its inner layer is worked with cherubim, and we'll also see on the veil that is going to hang between the holy place and the holy of holies. And in verse 31, we see a description of the veil, and we must remember that the tabernacle is a veiled representation of the glory of God. What is remarkable about the veil is, first of all, it's made of one piece, which is significant because we see at the crucifixion of Christ that is split from top to bottom in the temple. Now, keep in mind that the tabernacle curtain would not have been this tall, but the one split in the crucifixion would have been 40 feet tall, or maybe even taller than that. Either way, it's a massive amount of fabric, and there's no entrance through it, so the priest would have to lift it up in order to go under it or around it in some way to get to the Holy of Holies to minister there once a year. The veil serves as a symbol of our separation from God apart from Christ. So when that curtain is torn at the crucifixion, we receive access. We can now approach the throne of grace. Now let's continue our reading with Exodus chapter 27. Plans for the Altar of Burnt Offering Using acacia wood, construct a square altar seven and a half feet wide, seven and a half feet long, and four and a half feet high. Make horns for each of its four corners so that the horns and altar are all one piece. Overlay the altar with bronze. Make ash buckets, shovels, basins, meat forks, and fire pans, all of bronze. Make a bronze grating for it and attach four bronze rings at its four corners. Install the grating halfway down the side of the altar under the ledge. For carrying the altar, Make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with bronze. Insert the poles through the rings on just two sides of the altar. The altar must be hollow, made from planks. Build it as you were shown on the mountain. Plans for the courtyard. Then make the courtyard for the tabernacle, enclosed with curtains made of finely woven linen. On the south side, make the curtains 150 feet long. They will be held up by 20 posts set securely in 20 bronze bases. Hang the curtains with silver hooks and rings. Make the curtains the same on the north side. 150 feet of curtain held by 20 posts set securely in bronze bases. Hand the curtains with silver hooks and rings. The curtains on the west end of the courtyard will be 75 feet long, supported by 10 posts set into 10 bases. The east end of the courtyard, the front, will also be 75 feet long. The courtyard entrance will be on the east end flanked by two curtains. The curtains on the right side will be 22 and a half feet long, supported by three posts set in three bases. The curtains on the left side will also be 22 and a half feet long, supported by three posts set in three bases. For the entrance to the courtyard, make a curtain that is 30 feet long. Make it from finely woven linen and decorate it with beautiful embroidery in blue, purple, and scarlet thread. Support it with four posts, each set securely in its own base. All the posts around the courtyard must have silver rings and hooks and bronze bases. So the entire courtyard will be 150 feet long and 75 feet wide, with curtain walls seven and a half feet high, made from finely woven linen. The bases for the posts will be made of bronze. All the articles used in the rituals of the tabernacle, including all the tent pegs used to support the tabernacle and the courtyard curtains, must be made of bronze. Light for the Tabernacle Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light, to keep the lamps burning continually. The lampstand will stand in the tabernacle, in front of the inner curtains that shield the Ark of the Covenant. Aaron and his sons must keep the lamps burning in the Lord's presence all night. This is a permanent law for the people of Israel, and it must be observed from generation to generation. In God of Freedom, Jen Wilkin has this to say about the bronze altar. 
What we often don't consider is that when we encounter the bronze altar, this would have been the first thing that you would see when you walk into the front entrance of the tabernacle's exterior wall. And this is the furthest point that the average person would have gone, because that's where they would have given their sacrifice to the priest to be offered. They would lay their hand on the head of the sacrifice, and then it would be offered on their behalf, and then they would leave. So what we're saying here is that the spotless animal had to be taken from the herd and brought the very best animal that they had, and then they would lay their hand on him. Imagine if you bring this animal in that you would watch this animal be slaughtered as well. You would see the blood that comes from the animal in that moment. Think about how many animals would have to be sacrificed over the course of the years that the tabernacle and the temple were functioning. We'll talk about more of that in the next episode when we talk about the role of the priests. But just imagine what that courtyard would have been like with everyone bringing their sacrifices in. I don't think we often reflect on the fact that the outer court would have been filled with all kinds of sounds, with all kinds of animals, and when animals get scared, you know the reaction that they have, and so that that smell would have been overwhelming as well. Actually, the smell of the animals themselves, but the smell of the blood as the animals were being sacrificed, it would have been an assault on the senses. There would have been noise and confusion and all manner of sights and smells that are going on out in the outer courtyard, and that would be the whole experience of the average Israelite as it relates to being a part of the tabernacle worship. They would come in, give that sacrifice, and they would leave. But in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14, it reads, Christ is the perfect sacrifice. So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands, and is not part of this created world. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal Spirit, Christ offered Himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. Jen goes on to say here that that is a once-and-for-all offering, and that we enter by means of Christ's own blood, His blood, not an animal substitute and He secures our eternal redemption. Whereas these sacrifices had to be made over and over and over again. But the main difference between the sacrifice of Christ and these sacrifices is that the sacrifices of bulls, goats, and rams would only cover sin, but it could not remove them the way that the sacrifice of Christ does for us. He is the true and better sacrifice. Oh, that truth, my friends. Jesus is the true and better sacrifice. So beautiful, and also one we will continue to develop in Exodus and on into the Leviticus, for sure. Before we draw our time to a close today, I want to share one more resource I came across from the Spoken Gospel that gives evidences of the many places we find Jesus and also some of the things we learn about God within our studies today. Moses is talking with God at Mount Sinai when he receives the plans for a movable structure called a tabernacle. This is the tent in which God would dwell with his people as they journey from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land. God has always wanted to live with his people, That's what the Garden of Eden was for. And now, in the tabernacle, God is going to make the first giant step in restoring the presence He had with humanity back in Eden. Basically, the instructions for how to build the tent start at the center and work their way out. The mercy seat in the Holy of Holies is the central part of the tabernacle. We can think of it like a king's throne. This is where God would appear and meet with His people, like He met with Moses on the mountain. Next, there is the bread of the presence, which represents the twelve tribes of Israel. In front of that is the golden lampstand, which continuously shines on the bread. This was to be a constant testament to the fact that God's presence is with His people. 
Outside of the tent, in the outer court of the tabernacle, there is an altar. The altar is where the sacrifices would be made. This reveals that people cannot approach God just as they are. Their sin must be dealt with through sacrifice. Everything in the tabernacle is sectioned off by curtains. The more dense and ornate they become, the closer one would get to the holy presence of God. This fact shows that the closer people get to God, the more protection is needed. The structure of the tabernacle conveys one strong message. God is holy. He is set apart, glorious, and perfect. Which is what makes Jesus coming to earth so magnificent. Jesus is the final tabernacle because he is the tent in which God fully dwells in the flesh. John chapter 1 verse 14. But Jesus doesn't just fulfill the tabernacle itself, but every part of the tabernacle. He is the actual holy of holies because he is the actual presence of God. Jesus is the bread of life who is present for his people. He is the light of the world that shines on them eternally with his protection. He is the final sacrifice in the altar that allows us to enter into the most holy place of God. Furthermore, at Jesus' death, the curtain covering the Holy of Holies ripped open to show that there is no longer separation from God and his people. All who belong to Jesus have been turned into little tabernacles in which he dwells through the Holy Spirit. And eventually, Jesus will return and transform the whole world into his new tabernacle, as mentioned in Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. For he will dwell in it with us forever. Through belief in Jesus' work on the cross, we are now little tabernacles in which God dwells with us, always. There it is again, my obi tears. Fulfillment of God's desire to be Emmanuel, God with us. Then in the tabernacle with Moses and the Israelites, all the way forward to now, in our lives today. That's so good. Okay, let's close our time together with this prayer from Jen Wilkins' God of Freedom study. She just seems to say what's lingering in my heart and mind after our studies together today, so we're just going to use her words. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the heavenly design of these items in the tabernacle, and that when you chose to design your dwelling place, that you patterned it after a home with a place to sit, and a place to eat, and a light to see, and a doorway to come through, that it had the smells of home and the tastes of home. We pray, Lord, that you would write heaven on our hearts. We know that we await a true and better home that will one day come down from heaven. But during our waiting time, Lord, help us to show others what it means to long for home, as is found in your tabernacle. Let our lives be a picture of something that they would long for. May we be lights in the darkness. May we bring daily bread in a spiritual sense to all who need it. May our prayers be a fragrant incense, and may we walk with confidence to you, both in our times of need and in our times of gratitude. We ask all of these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So, as always, I know I threw a lot of info at you today in our studies together. If you don't remember anything else from this episode, there are a few things I want you to hold on to from Exodus chapters 25 through 27. Honestly, I think I'm going to start adding this recap toward the end of all OOBT episodes from here on out to hopefully help us all keep the main thing of each of our study times together. The main thing. With that said, here are a few takeaways I hope you remember. 1. God has always desired to be with us, to dwell with us, and that, my friends, is the whole point of the redemption story found throughout the Bible, the whole reason for our rescuer Jesus, Emmanuel, God with them and us, always. Number two, no matter how much the details of God's tabernacle blueprint may seem confusing or just plain old too much, we need to be thankful that our God is a God of detail, because we need Him to be in so many ways, in our own lives even. Number three, consider this with me. How many times has God asked us to do something and we prayed, begged, pleaded, wished, all the things for God to give us more detail about what we were supposed to do? 
Have you considered just how unsure everyone would have been if God had just asked them to build him a dwelling place with no instructions whatsoever? My mind is racing right now with all the different directions that construction could take when designing and building a place for our amazing God to be with us. Goodness gracious, when we think about it from that perspective, doesn't it make all of these details seem more like a kindness than drudgery to work through in our studies? Number four, as one more thought I had before we close out our time together today, our God, who spoke the world into creation, is now speaking his dwelling place here on earth into creation through the details he is giving to Moses on Mount Sinai. He could have completely done this without them, but instead chooses to use the skills of the people that he loves. All this makes me think that he must want their involvement, to possibly take some ownership and pride in it, or maybe for them to have an understanding of God's majesty and holiness based on the intricate details of all he is asking them to create and build. Pretty amazing to consider, but then again God is still choosing to use each one of us in his ongoing plan of rescue and redemption, when we also know without a shadow of a doubt that he could do all that without our involvement as well. So beautiful and humbling to consider, am I right? Okay, my Bible study friends, up next, more design blueprints, this time for the priestly garments and honestly, so much more. Please don't miss out. This is M. Faring, and I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friends. <laughs>